Live podcast. y'all i'm ben hey ben hey i'm ben. andrew bailey everybody i'm hey. colin caulfield hey bud i'm cole <laughs> <laughs> and together we are <laughs> dive in my my dark times i feel like i have a tendency to like um chase after like nostalgia and like revert to like a childhood sense of like comfort you know and like the way I've been doing that, and also it ties into like not wanting to stare at my phone for twenty hours a day. Yeah. So I like I bought this MP3 player and a Kindle. So I've just been like hoarding information from <laughs> the internet, but like mostly shit from like I've been getting really into um, Coast to Coast. Any of you guys ever fuck with that? A long time ago. It was like this uh, AM radio show. The, at least in North Carolina, I came on like, I think it was like 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. or something like that, or 6 a.m. So it was like, you know, fucking crazy head hours only. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I used to listen to it when Loveline ended. If I still couldn't fall asleep, yeah. then I would switch over. As, as a kid, it was just like whenever I happened to be up. But then later, as an adult, it was like you go to the bar, the bar closes, you go to someone's house to smoke weed. And listen to fucking Coast to Coast. And it's just like people calling in telling about how they've like gotten abducted by UFOs and shit. Oh, cool. It's kind of like creepy. And the, how I got into it was like Halloween. I wanted to feel creepy. So I started listening to it again. But uh, And he would let anybody on, right? Oh, yeah. And he, he treated everyone with respect, yeah. too. Even if they were like had the stupidest theory ever, he was like, he would like give them their day in court. This is like talk radio. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's actually, I mean, no, that's not true. I mean, conspiracy culture, which I think we should talk about in a future episode, has been like completely co-opted by the radical right. Yeah. Um, by by extremists. But um, you know, I think in in Bailey, in your kind of like deep dives into um like flat earth mm-hmm. culture and conspiracy culture, I feel like you have a really unique way of approaching it where it's not just like, you think the earth is flat, you fucking idiot. Right. Like, try to understand, like, what it what it brings them, you know, like a sense of community, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a, a an ideology. And I think that, like, hearing out people with, you know, conspiracy theories that aren't, like, there's a satanic cabal running the world or, you know... Um, like any of the like crazy anti-Semitic and wild right, conspiracy yeah, exactly. theories that exist, but like the more and they kind of tie into each other. But I think in general, the, your approach to flat Earth is um, really cool. Yeah, I, you know, I a very close friend of mine is a flat Earther, and so at first when he told me, I was like, you "Fucking idiot!" You know, gravity is real. I promise. Like space and stuff is cool. <laughs> uh, and we would argue over physics and stuff, and it was just pointless. And after a while, he was like, yo, I don't care what shape the Earth is. That's not 
what's important to me. What's important to me is like the spiritual quest that it's put me on. And I think that's true for most flat earthers, not necessarily with a spiritual quest, but it gives them something. And I'm more curious finding out what that is than I am calling them an idiot. Well, a lot of people are looking for a sense of community too. Yeah, I, I think that's mainly what it is. It's mm-hmm. people who are marginalized from society but don't necessarily have like a, a common reason to be marginalized. Right. And, uh, you know, are told that they have privilege and stuff like that. And they're just like, well, my life still sucks. And it's like, oh, the earth is flat. And there's this deep state cabal that has been hiding the truth of like technology and shit from us. That's why my life sucks. Like, mm-hmm. it's not my fault. Um, and how true that is, I don't know, because I know flat earthers who had good lives before. Yeah. Well, I found the same thing with like these, I mean, they're not new, but they're, have come to like more prominence of like right-wing militia people. And it's the same thing that as the flat earth people where it's, we all kind of want the same thing where they're like, oh, we want to fight against tyranny. The government is out to get us. And it's like, I mean, I feel that way too, but like you're supporting the president. Like how's that? Actual government. Yeah. (laughs) It's very confusing because, and I think the same thing, happened to you when you started getting into a flat earth Bailey was you're like, Oh, like this shit is so wrong. And then you are like, well, how do I fucking know mm-hmm. what gravity is or like what any of this shit is? And so you have to like go on your own quest for truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the best thing that happened with my friend becoming a flat earther is that in arguing with him, I realized I didn't know shit about cosmology yeah. or physics or anything. It's complicated and, as fuck. And now it's like my favorite thing. You know, every day I'm watching science videos, not to argue with him, but just because that shit is really cool. Yeah. Um, and so I thank him all the time. Like, yo, thank you for <laughs> making me learn this just to prove that you were wrong. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but that was never the, even um, politely telling people they were wrong was never what Art Bell did. He was just like, you know, thank you for calling. And then we'd just like move on yeah. politely. I mean, every once in a while, people would like prank call or like come in and like tell a long-winded joke and you'd be like, okay. Did you ever call? No, I've never called. Um, But that was like a weird, I mean, that show went up until the mid 2000s and then he had a serious XM show after that. Um, And then he died like three or four years ago or something. But like, it made me think about radio in general and that, oh, I also wanted to say, I recently found out that the word nostalgia comes from the Greek words for home and pain, which I thought was like beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and Perfect. Like yeah. A, a pain you feel thinking of home? Yeah. Or just you feel this. No, just both associations, like thinking of home, but like, it being inseparable from mm-hmm. pain. Cold comfort or something, maybe. But, you know, so it's like when you do try to, or like when I try to fight depression with nostalgia, it leads to like a different (laughs) type of sadness, you know, Mm -hmm. because you don't, you can't get your childhood back or whatever. Mm -hmm. But do you guys have any um, memories associated with like radio shows or anything like that or like a DJ or anything or a station even. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I already mentioned it, but Loveline yeah. taught me everything I know about sex. <laughs> I mean, at that point, you know. Uh, 
I'm caught up with Dr. Drew recently. He's kind of yeah. He's not a good and neither not a good is guy. A, Adam Carolla is also like a very very big yeah, piece of sex. yeah. How garbage. did like remember his show The Man Show? Right. Yeah. How the fuck <laughs> does that exist? Yeah, yeah that was it's out of control. He's a podcast like you know one of the original. He's had a podcast for like 15 years. Yeah, and uh, he's very right wing. Is that right? Oh yeah, and Dr. Drew. He's just yeah. like edgy. Yeah, exactly. He's like he's like pro free speech to like a ridiculous degree mm-hmm. and you know. Dr. Which is like right wing. Yeah, huh? I think so. But like the like the like you know, I feel like pro free speech has just become this like kind of far right talking point that like isn't actually they're not actually fighting for free speech. Oh yeah, I'm not saying that saying um I'm referencing more like the clique that he's part of. Why do you yeah. love Adam Carolla so much? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is funny. It's funny coming across that dude and just being like, God, this guy's such an asshole. But then you like think of the man show and there should be no surprise. Yeah. And know? Jimmy Kimmel's had his career like, you know, it's like. Yeah. I guess that maybe that maybe it is surprising because Jimmy Kimmel kind of did. He went in an opposite direction. Yeah, he's like Mr. Nice Guy now. Yeah. Remember. um Win Ben Stein's money, Jimmy Kimmel's yeah. first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was then, the co-host. Yeah, Bueller. or he was the host because Ben Stein was a contestant. I can't remember. I can't remember ben either. Stein is also like a weird right-wing yeah. Republican who yeah, exactly. believes in uh, young Earth creationism and is like against oh, really? evolutionary theory and shit. Interesting. Humorous. I don't have any associate like memories of specific radio shows as much. There were certain stations in like the Twin Cities in Minnesota when I was growing up, but my like best and oldest friend Pat Kessler, him and I were like, we just loved music. Yeah. And like even before we like played instruments, we were like recording on one of those shitty like tabletop microphones that came with old computers. You know what I'm talking about? They're white Yeah. And we record these like crazy songs. Like there was one called like Shack Daddy Ain't Gonna Go Boom No More. And <laughs> wow. like Is that Sleeping on the Pipes too? And yeah, and he's my friend. I wrote Sleeping on the Pipes. What about is, this about from the perspective of this man who like I think he was like a postal worker that like s- like lived in our basement and slept in the pipes anyway on um, the pipes yeah on the pipes. Pipes. <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> um but him and I like listened to radio all the time after school and we had this club called MLB cuz we loved baseball and like sometimes we would um like play this like baseball trading card game but other times we would just like, like draw and listen to the radio, and MLB like um, doubled as music loving boys. <laughs> and every day we'd sit down and we would like get really close to the radio, and a song would come on, and we would just talk about it. But I really am curious, like what we were talking about, because <laughs> mm-hmm. we didn't have any like musical knowledge. You know, it's like not like we were like, oh, this like guitar part's really cool. We were just talking about like so innocently and purely, you know. So it's just like this podcast, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I do have really fond memories of radio because of that. Because as a kid, it like, not only did it like turn me on to music and like dubbing tapes when I was younger and shit like that, but it just felt much more mysterious than like Spotify, which is actually like a pretty good, like the streaming services are actually pretty good um, at like showing you new music if mm-hmm. you go out to look for it. Um but it just it doesn't have the same like 
magic than mm-hmm. like listening to the There's radio. There's something spe- special knowing that other people are listening to the exact same thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, I don't know what it is, but well, and you know, historically, DJs had um, a lot of power to introduce a large number of people to like whatever music they felt like, mm-hmm. and there were like regional hits and stuff like that, like songs or even styles of music that were, like, only popular in, like, the Midwest or whatever. Yeah. And I remember I just, like, love the radio. Like, I still, even though NPR is just kind of, like, bland, whatever, I just really like it. I guess that makes me a lib. Sure does. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> I mean, I was listening to NPR yesterday, and they had a commercial for Raytheon. I was just like, who is this for? They had what? Ted Cruz on two days ago. Just God. <laughs> the fuck out of here. But, um... Then at one point, I was like listening to the radio or whatever, flipping through, and you hear like the same song on every channel. And it's just mm-hmm. like, how did this happen? And I started researching it, and it was like, oh, there's a very specific reason why this happened. Mm-hmm. And it was Bill Clinton. Thanks, Billy. The Telecommunications Act of 1996, which since discovering that, I became like obsessed with it. Well, the, the like, you know, I think there's, we've witnessed, you know, our just like media networks becoming like full-time government propaganda, you know, mm-hmm. Fox News or just like the kind of like extreme centrism of, you know, like the, like MSNBC and CNN, where like, you know, basically what the Telecommunications Act did in, in 96 was it... You know, it was bought and paid for by corporate media lobbies, and it opened the floodgates on mergers and allowed these giant corporations run by a small group of old bigots, and they just bought up thousands of media outlets across the country, which increased the stranglehold and the flow of information around in the, in the U.S. and around the world, um, and that set the stage for the, you know, just like pure stream of propaganda. Um, one, one thing I kind of liked was you know, as like a lot of corporate initiatives are, it had bipartisan support, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, I think only 3% of Congress voted against it. But, um, one person when went back when he was in the house of representatives, Bernie Sanders voted against it. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Respect. And uh, like, I knew that was coming. Yeah. He didn't just vote against it. He was like very opposed to it. Yeah. And his speeches against it are very badass. Mm-hmm. I yeah. I watched this documentary last night called, Orwell rolls in his grave. It's from like <laughs> 2007. This is actually a part of my weird nostalgia trip. It's like I've been going back to Bush era like counterculture stuff, like Naomi Klein and uh, mm-hmm. Chomsky and stuff. Um, but the crazy thing about the Telecom Act is that what you just said is true that it led to like mergers and like these huge like Viacom and Comcast being able to purchase as many radio stations in as many markets as they wanted. But the the way that they justified the bill was by saying it did the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. They were like, this is going to increase competition because regulation is what kills competition. So we're going to deregulate the telecommunications <laughs> sector. Damn, corporations asking for deregulation? <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. I didn't understand at first was how they made that argument. But it was because the internet had just came out. Yeah, the internet was an important part and of the bill. It, it has to do with like um, how the internet used to work with dial-up and how you would have to call in 
to a website basically to log into that and like services like AOL and shit. We're like, well, if we could just do both, you know, if we could provide the, I'm acting like I know internet stuff. I don't know how it works at all. But basically they were like, we want to be able to do both sides of the internet and provide it without anybody else. Yeah, because it was at the beginning of the internet, phone companies were like kind of in control of it. Yeah, and yeah, I, I just don't know how it works because I never used the internet before AOL. Mm-hmm. I might have used the internet like once before the Telecommunications Act. Um, so we don't really know what it was like. But from what I understand, you would just like literally call a number of a website and then you would have access to their little section of the internet. And AOL was like, we just want to control all of that and just be able to provide it. But in order to do that, they needed the deregulation. So the Telecommunications Act affected all media and yeah. like also the internet. and mm-hmm. yeah, Because the original Telecom Act was like 1936 or something. So it was meant to just be like an update because we have this new technology now. Right. But they snuck in all this deregulation. Yeah, and they promised all these things, but then immediately went to court to sue to turn over everything. You know, like all the concessions that they had made, they immediately sued oh, okay. um, to get rid of them. So it just became an act that allows for mergers. And that happened right away. Yeah, like immediately the, all the mergers started happening. Yeah. And, you know, to the point where... Um, you know, within like a decade or whatever, all the country's major media was owned by six corporations. Yep. Yeah, it went from 50 in 1983 to in 2005, there's only six. I mean, yeah, in terms of radio, like iHeartMedia is the company that owns uh, Clear Channel, right? Which mm-hmm. owns or, like, know, but... But yeah, anyway, uh, and then iHeartMedia's parent company is Bain Capital. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah they own... 855 radio stations. Um, and But the practical way that this affects, like, art is that rather than cool DJs who, like, have a point of view and taste, it's, like, market research fools who are just like, mm-hmm. here's what the people need to hear, and it's just... And they have access to, you know, many different stations over many different art uh, markets. And so it's just... It ends up... With this like homogenized, bland, shitty. I mean, which if you are one of those artists who is on that playlist, like you're making millions off of the mm-hmm. radio, but then no one else has a chance. Yeah. And the next frontier is that AI is making all the decisions and like statistics, like Spotify, all the playlisting is just done by AI now. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's like cu- there. there's curated playlists. But I think the majority of the decisions are it's influenced all by like stats, machine learning shit. Yeah. Huh. I don't even know what to say about that. It's, it's not I'm good. <laughs> I'm more concerned about the news. You know, like, yeah, like right. an actual propaganda machine. Like, yeah, it's like 1984, and the proles are listening to robot music. <laughs> but the news is literal propaganda now. And, yeah. and remember, it was like last year. I want to say where somebody just put all these news, different news channels from all over the country and put them all in the same window and press play. Mm. And it's just word for word. They're all reading from the same script. Yeah. And that's that's extremely dangerous. And that's also like the effect that that Facebook's had on our democracy Mm -hmm. where it it doesn't have, you know, no matter how extreme the content is, like whatever, you know, they find that the more like controversial 
something is, it gets more clicks. Mm-hmm, so then right. the thing that floats to the top, like the top performing Facebook posts every day are fucking Ben Shapiro. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, and like this like extreme far right shit that enters these these like kind of feedback loops and it's all data driven. You know, it has it's it's like and and Facebook's fucking making all the money off it, so they don't give a fuck. The really scary thing to me is that Ben Shapiro is actually an odd example because after the election when it was called for Biden, he came out and was like, this is ridiculous. Trump is calling into question, like, the validity of the elections. Like, this Damn, is Damn, welcome huge... to the resistance, Ben. <laughs> well, yeah, but this is huge And you had all these people in the Twitter replies saying, like, I always knew you weren't a real conservative. Yeah. And it's like, so there's people, like, even further, like, much further. Well, his whole thing, like, his platform in the beginning was like, I didn't vote for, I didn't vote for Trump, but yeah. I, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, actually, but the the same thing happened to Fox News because they called it for Biden. And then a lot of their viewership was just like, okay, I guess Fox News is, you know, part of the problem now. Yeah, this whole whole thing, they jumped over to Newsweek or or Newsmax. Yeah, Yeah, his entire Twitter feed or timeline or whatever today is just retweeting people being like, I'm I hate Fox News now, mm-hmm. going to OANN or Newsmax. I was trying to last time. I never so heard of Newsmax. Fucking hoopty. Yeah. Newsmax is fucking It's really bad. Well it's always, it's always funny that like Trump and and Republicans since he got elected and before were like riding this like this wave of like anti media stuff, mm-hmm. even though like Fox is the media. Yes, that's, I mean, that's so the, confusing. It's and like now the it's fascism like, playbook, though. Right, but now it's finally caught up, and like now they're actually abandoning, and they're still saying like we're anti media. Now they have more like ground to stand on, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on who you are. Like, if you're just like a conservative person, and you're like the media is rotten, that's like fine. You have a point, but if yeah. you're literally Tucker. Tucker Carlson, right. and you're like, the mainstream media. It's like, who are you talking about? <laughs> it's insane. The Dive Podcast. 96 was two years after Kurt Cobain died. Um, so Nirvana existed in this weird space. I mean, I was eight years old in 1994. So it's not like I was like, you know, watching Michael Moore documentaries and like reading Noam Chomsky. But <laughs> in retrospect, it's really interesting. The, the, what Nirvana um, represented for young people in the nineties and like why that was so resonant of this kind of like, uh, fuck it. Like, and this is something I really um, like about Sonic Youth, too, who we will, I'm sure, talk about more in, in a future episode. We'll definitely talk about more. Is that their lyrics aren't really, like, Marxist or, like, mm-hmm. explicitly against America or capitalism. It's this weird kind of laissez-faire, like, oh, we just don't even care. Like, it's every, this shit is just so stupid. And I feel like... That we right now we're at a point in history where shit is very on fire, but in the nineties, like economically, it was like pretty good, and like you know Bill Clinton's policies were terrible in the long term, but in the short term, like everybody got rich, you know. Yeah, and so people could see through this like beginnings of neoliberalism, 
but there wasn't the same impassioned like leftism. It was more just like this vague kind of like, I just want to like throw the world in the trash because this is stupid. Yeah. There are these kind of like little Easter eggs that you can, if you like view Kurt like as being kind of like as, as you read more of like his journals and stuff, you're like, Oh, this dude was like like a like a radical leftist, which is extremely sick. There, there's like a line in his journals where he's like, um, you know, he's talking about right wingers being terrorists. He says explicitly in the journals, uh, this is a quote from the journals: "I'm in absolute and total support of homosexuality, drug use, and experimentation, anti-oppression, i.e., religion, racism, sexism, censorship, and patriotism." Creativity through music, art, and journalism, love, friendship, family, animals, full scale, oh yeah, and full scale violently organized terrorist fueled revolution. <laughs> wow. Um, Interesting. And, and like, given that, you know, since like his entire life has just been exposed and like given to the public with through that lens, then you can read more into the lyrical content and you're like, oh, maybe like, you know, the. God is gay line or like, yeah. you know, I mean, we can talk more about the, the, the like radical feminism and stuff in, in the lyrics, but, um, you know, there is like some pretty progressive ideologies in there, but it wasn't like, it's not like you're listening to like dead Kennedys or something, mm-hmm. you know, it's not explicit. It's kind of like they're little Easter eggs. And then f- the more you kind of read his like full body of work, which like I guess doesn't even count. These journals don't really count as like a body of work, but like, I guess against his will, it became that. Yeah. It puts it in a different lens. Yeah. Even like, I remember hearing a description of the song Downer, which I think is the last track on Bleach. Yeah. Um, as Kurt's attempt at a political song. But the lyrics are still vague and cryptic. Like, young me couldn't figure out the politics mm-hmm. of it. Um, but I do like that about him. You know, it's not Rage Against the Machine just in your face or like something like Credence or something like that. You know, <clears throat> it was protest music. Downer's just like this rant. Yeah, it really is. It's like a, With, it's like an actual rant. Badass chorus, though. I love mm-hmm. the chorus of that. I mean, this is going to be so hard not to just jump around or get ahead of ourselves, but the the thing that I enjoy most about his lyrics is that, like, most of the songs just perform this crazy magic trick where, like, if you listen to it without thinking or knowing what the song is about, the lyrics just have this, like, ambiguous, vague, like, turn of phrase thing about it. But then as soon as you know what it's about, you can't mm-hmm. unhear it. Yeah, and totally. then the lyrics all of a sudden like really snap into place and they seem super intentional. Yeah. But up until that point, they kind of that's like one stereotype or like um misconception about him as a lyricist is that yeah, he it was writes just all about nothing. Shit. Yeah. yeah. He is kind of a blank slate that you can like project your beliefs onto. You know, he's like 
kind of this quintessential outsider, which is like kind of ironic given his like very mainstream good looks and, and, mm-hmm. and, um, appeal. But like, I, like the, there's a Ivanka Trump, um, I think it's in her book. She's like, during my punk phase in the nineties, I was really into Nirvana. My wardrobe consisted of ripped corduroy jeans mm-hmm. and flannel shirts. Like her entry point into Nirvana was like, like some kind of like, like aesthetic fashion yeah. thing. Yeah. And like, obviously was not engaging with any of like the ideology. I feel like with Nirvana, there's two conversations. There's like, okay. So we talked about, um, uh, what was the first episode? Mm, the cure. cure. We talked about the cure. We talked about Noi. We talked about slow dive, all of which had cultural impacts, but it was more about, we were talking about like the music. Yeah. But with Nirvana, their cultural impact like cannot be overstated. Like they mm-hmm. were top five biggest rock bands of all time. Yeah. It's the voice of a generation, mm-hmm. like actually. Yeah. You know, Generation X. That's Yeah, really well. I was watching a video where they're interviewing just random people at St. John's University in New York. They give them in utero and yeah. say, come back and listen to it. And I was so surprised that the diversity of people who fuck with Nirvana back then, it was like mainstream mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I definitely want to have both of those conversations, but you guys want to listen to a song and we could talk a little bit about music and then we can bring it back around to its cultural impact. Yeah, sure. yeah. I love the part, but uh, it being mm. left in at the end. Yeah. It's kind of cheesy. It's just a distracting. Like, the song's over. I personally, I hate that part. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I hate it. And uh, <laughs> it's just like, it's like Dave Grohl core shit. Like, anybody watch Foo Fighters on SNL? Hell yeah. The big, like, Mumford and Sons, like, like arena rock. Ooh. Yeah, a lot of ooze. Shit is just like, it's like the the... It's it's a pet peeve of mine for sure, but it just seems like the lowest common denominator. It's just like of, car commercial music. Well, yeah. yeah, that's why. Like I remember in a previous band talking about how are we going to get syncs? How are we going to get syncs? You know, how get the songs in commercials and movies. And they're all like, well, you just got to put ooze and la la la's. You know, yeah, whistle it, whistles don't and want a ukulele lyrics. Yeah, and, and like you know, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have talked about. Um, never mind kind of being the moment where Nirvana like 
like strayed from their um, ethos, you know, and it's just, it is extremely overproduced, but it's also, you know, an amazing record and, and I love it. But that is just like, to me, the, the like, proof of overproduction mm-hmm. just like you don't fucking need the like dave grohl <laughs> you think that was his idea dave grohl yeah i'm no, sure i think it was butch fig's idea yeah it sounds no like but i mean like we mean leaving it in after the yeah. end of the song yeah i'm sure that was butch fig's idea but i think the harmony was mm-hmm. was dave grohl's i mean i that's thing. my favorite part of the song that was the little ooh, ooh. not so the ending but that's crazy you don't like the ooze at all no oh wow i like them no, yeah. like I'm not listening to that band to hear Dave Grohl do like the fucking Mumford thing. <laughs> well, but see, that's like kind of, I mean, you guys know this, but the listener doesn't. I've never been like a Nirvana fan um, just because like by the time I was old enough to get into it, like that moment had passed and I was into like metal and I thought that the purpose of music was to be as heavy as possible. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, Nirvana has got this like pop shit. Like why? Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the distorted guitars and the pop sensibility at the same time. I think that would bother me more if it were hypocritical, but it wasn't. Like Kurt was very open, just like, yeah, we're the 90s version of Cheap Trick. You know, he was like, in my eyes, punk is dead. And so, you know, we're just basically like a punk tribute band. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> But at the heart, they're writing pop music. And he was well aware of that and knew very much that Nirvana was, you know, like the, it was the other one, the Knacks or something like that. What? Cheap Trick. And oh, um, not the Knacks. The Knack. The Knack. Mm-hmm. Right. My Sharona. Just like, you know, punk, you know, like the, the Green Day of the 80s. Um, and Nirvana did that. You know, they took punk and added very, very catchy melodies and, you know, Kurt was drawn on a lot of Beatles inspiration and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And uh, I think that's great. And I don't I don't have as much of a problem with the overproduction because of that. To me, that's, that's kind of what, like, because, you know, they were like grunge or whatever. But another word that came out of that period was alternative, mm-hmm. which going back to the radio conversation, it was like the alternative to what's on the radio, like the more like yeah. underground shit. But when I think of alternative i just think of like pop music with like louder guitars which i don't have a problem with anymore it was just at the time i was like not into it right okay yeah and so by the time that we came around alternative was the you know there was alternative radio stations and Mm -hmm. they were the major radio stations and so it wasn't alternative at all anymore yeah i mean i think it's really important to talk about um when talking about Nirvana, about their like DIY roots and their um, their their DIY identity, um, there's a a quote that I found in this reading from somebody named Eric Draut. Talks he says uh, the unspoken rules of higher serious art demand that participants renounce overt forms of commercial compensation in order to engage in what's commonly depicted as disinterested activity. This reversal of normal economic relations serves as a way of imbuing a sacred aura around art, symbolically removing it from the corrupting influences of commerce. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know, artists who comply with this kind of, like, internalized ethic or, like, um, artistic conscience are viewed more favorably. And then those who break them or, like, you know, sell out 
um, are viewed negatively. So it causes a tendency to hold musicians who make a show of sacrificing themselves for their art in a higher esteem. Um, and this adds this kind of like surplus value to the art that goes beyond the actual quality of the art itself. So like they're, they, they were like bringing pop music um, influences to like package this kind of like subversive um, ideology into mainstream, but like in order to balance the um, like high commercial impact of the band, there had to be this like kind of like self-flagellation. Mm-hmm. Like can subversive and any capitalist art thrive in a capitalist system? Yeah. It, like it reminds me of like a Che Guevara t-shirt or something like these ideas of yeah. uh, imagery that is very subversive, but then gets co-opted by capitalism and so they sell kids Che Guevara shirts and it not only, you know, they make money off the shirts, but they're also sort of um, diminishing the power of the image of Che Guevara. And that happens time and time again. And I th- I don't know if Nirvana would be an example of that because like as somebody who discovered Nirvana and then became way more counterculture than I had been as a result, you know, because I was in my formative years, like through middle school, I was like, okay, this is what, I want to be. And it's had a very, very lasting effect on my personality. Um, whereas if I had been born five years earlier, like I would be into Guns N' Roses or something. I don't know. You know, I, I do think that, yeah. I thought I fucking hated. Yeah. What is the quote? Um, I'll, I'll drop you to the pavement or something <laughs> like that. He said that to Kurt. Well, it does. It's like at the time it definitely served that counterculture purpose, but like, now, 25 years later, I think it's been so watered down that they're almost more of a t-shirt than a band. But, like, the idea is that, like, truth, you know, in general under capitalism is suppressed and not promoted. So, like, it be, it's like it has to become a watered down version of itself. And it's this kind of self-sustaining downward spiral where there's, like, truth that is is repressed so it becomes, like, a shell Mm-hmm. And then that shell is like half understood by the public. And then it like creates this kind of like downward spiral where the message is, um, is just like sanitized. Um, also on that, or should we wait for in utero? You're talking yeah, about like with maybe, the money yeah. thing. Well, well, I guess real quick, wait, like talking about how money, like you can't profit off of art and still allow that art to be genuine was the argument that Steve Albini made when he approached Nirvana to produce the second, or the, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the what would it be? Third. Third studio album. Um, and he was like, you know, I'm sure your label's going to want to give me points, which are going to be worth about like $400 million, you know, something crazy. I don't want that. You know, just give me whatever you think is comfortable. You know, like, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if you paid me a million dollars to do this. Mm-hmm. And he took $100,000 with no points, no royalties at all. And that was his whole thing. And Nirvana called him Mr. Ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's reflected in the music. Yeah, totally. You know, like just the production of it, you know, never mind is this like overproduced, super pristine record. And In Utero is like straight Steve Albini, like a document of the band yeah. as they exist, you know, for better or worse, that's what that record is. Yeah, and I'm, I wonder how, you know, like, Butch Vig says that he sort of tricked Kurt 
into doing a ton of guitar takes and stuff. Yeah. Um, I wonder how much of that is true. Like, did Kurt go into Nevermind Recordings being like, I want this to be as pure as possible? Or was he aware? Like, he knew that he was trying to make a commercially successful record. I feel like the the thing, the takeaway that I got from the, um, what's that documentary that came out a couple years ago? Montage. Montage of Heck, yeah. Mm-hmm. was like nobody had any clue how massively big it would be. Mm-hmm. And there's that like interview with Kurt's mom where he's talking about like she heard on the radio and just started crying. She knew like everything was about to change, mm-hmm. you know, and there's there's like stories from all their peers, Nirvana's peers, like hearing it on the radio. You know, there's the story about Dave Grohl hearing it on the radio mm-hmm. when he was like living out of his van or whatever his story is. Um you know, I don't think that they realized, I mean, it's impossible to realize how massive that record could possibly be. But How did also, they sign to Geffen? I have no idea. Because of Sonic Youth. So the, did Geffen approach them or were they like shopping around? I think like they, every label wanted them. But then After they, Bleach? Yeah. No, it was in, I think it was in the middle of them recording Nevermind because the label or whoever, somebody was like, don't do Butch Vig. Like, we've got all these five-star producers or whatever. And they're like, no, we we want Butch Vig. Like, Yeah, that's where those, like, smart studio bootlegs come from because oh, right. they went to that studio in Wisconsin um, and they played, you know, there's there's bootlegs of it. You could find them. And me and Bailey used to both collect Nirvana bootlegs. And oh, yeah. um, I think, was that the Wipeout bootleg? I forget what it was called, but it was recorded at Smart Studios. And I think they're kind of cooler versions of the... Um, songs, but they just like, you know, ended up not wanting to use that time. And that's when there's leftover time. Dave Grohl recorded that um, Pocket Watch record, which is like proto Foo Fighters, Mm -hmm. Dave Grohl solo project, which is actually really good considering how not good Foo Fighters is. Was, um, hey, first Foo Fighters record is good. (laughs) They got some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of those were going to be Nirvana songs. There's like two of them on the first, yeah. Or uh, was it Alone in an Easy Target? That was Kurt's favorite. Um, but was Marigold on that, the pocket watch? Yeah, yeah, Marigold. So Marigold was uh, recorded during the pocket watch um, session, and then um, it was became a Nirvana B-side. What was the B-side too? I want to say all apologies, but I'm not sure. Yeah. No, I feel like it would have been a, a um, Nevermind song. But either way, yeah, it was a B-side. And it's an incredibly good song. But it was just Dave Grohl by himself. Yeah. It's the only Nirvana song that doesn't have Kurt on it. Yeah. And uh, other than Scentless Apprentice, the only one that he didn't write. Mm-hmm. I just want to make one point about the production. Um, kind of in, in keeping with like no one knew how big it was going to be and everything. And kind of introduce the the problem um, at the core of like listening to Nirvana now. Uh, which is like so much music ended up sounding like that. And up until that point, like so little music sounded like it. And so it's, it's easy to look back and say it was overproduced or like pop, mm-hmm. but I, I actually like totally disagree with that because it's just a Nirvana record. Like if you listen to Nevermind after listening to Bleach, I don't think that the core of the band it had been dismantled. It's like, it sounds like a Nirvana record. It just sounds slightly more produced because like Butch Fig was doing stuff with doubling and like 
compression and shit like that. But it's not like it's not like they went in and shifted genres or something. Mm-hmm. That's actually the hallmark, usually in my mind, of a band going in and selling out and making like a pop record is that the songwriting and like the the genre of the band shifts and they try to make like a radio friendly thing. Mm-hmm. But up until that point and kind of what you were talking about with like capitalism, like watering down true art, like Nirvana like snuck through, you know what I mean? Like nothing was like that yet. And yeah. so Nirvana snuck through and Nevermind is actually like an authentic piece of art, I think. And I think like calling it pop music, I think does it a disservice or yeah. Why though? There's nothing wrong with pop music. I just think it's like pop music. We're we're using that term like extremely liberally, right? Like, like Nevermind is still a rock record. I thought, yeah, I thought you were the poptimist in the band. I am the poptimist, <laughs> and that that's why I want to like, kind of like, maybe counter that a little bit because it's not, it's not pop music. Like talking about it as being pop music now, I think there's a certain like. Uh, connotation with that word that has a lot to do with selling out. Mm-hmm. But like they did not sell out by making Nevermind. Well, it's popular music. Right. But I'm I'm saying like at like songwriting, like sure yeah. there was like, we talk about like the Mumford and Sons like element of the backing vocals, but that didn't even exist at that point. And so like the backing vocals then like, you know, maybe they sound cheesy now, but I think it's because we have these associations with it. And same way with like some of the like, some of his singing is really tough for me to stomach now because it just reminds me of all these like cheesy rock mm-hmm. bands. But like up until that point, like he was kind of just like doing his thing. And yeah. so because it like, I, f- I feel like it really is like completely like a counterculture, like, like not outsider art record, but it's its own thing. And then from there it rippled out and it became watered down. But like in hindsight, I don't think we should necessarily say that there's something like uniquely wrong with Nevermind. You know no, what I mean? I, no, I don't think there is. That's what I was saying. Because it's not hypocritical, because they didn't say like, oh, we're still DIY, like doing a pure thing, then there's, I have no problem with it. I yeah. like it. And it's not like polished, you know, like, yeah, there's six guitar tracks, but they all come in at different times. You know, it's like, you know, something that I would spend five minutes fixing in the logic. Yeah, totally. Know. I mean, that was a, a couple of days ago. Because, I mean, I had never, before we talked about doing this podcast, I had never listened to the whole album all the way through. And it was... <laughs> so crazy. Yeah. I know. It was, I mean, I did it on purpose. It was like, I'm Fuck too this. cool for yeah. this or whatever. Um, but Damn, I guess you are pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, but like the first half of the record, or basically like now, they're all singles and mm-hmm. shit you'll hear on the radio. So I was just like, ugh, like this is a slog to get through. But then the second half of the record were songs that I was not as familiar with. And it was a lot easier for me to enjoy Mm -hmm. because yeah, you're right. At the time it wasn't pop music, but now it is because it got so popular. Yeah. Which I think, I can't remember if we already made this point or not, but just how they did start as like kind of a DIY loud, screamy, weird band. And so they had, both of these things of like being an overnight success, but also having kind of paid their dues mm-hmm. because yeah. It, I mean, yeah. Kurt just wanted to be in the Melvins, you know, right. like mm-hmm. he was a roadie for the Melvins, you know, he had this like kind of hyper localized, um, uh, in the beginning, um, kind of like insular scene, like a kind of a lot of the scenes we've talked about in previous podcasts. 
Um, but, you know, I think the, the kind of like revolution in terms of Nirvana's music was having um, a song like About a Girl right next to Paper mm-hmm. Cuts, which is this kind of like sludgy melvins thing, you know, or like um, the first song on, on Bleach. Um, Blue Dive. No, Blue. Blue. Oh, yeah, blue. yeah, yeah, Blue. Yeah. That's um, the first one on Incessicide, right? Super down-tuned um, guitars, yeah. you yeah, know? It's like and like C-sharp or something crazy. Yeah. Like that is kind of the Melvin's influence, but then these, you know, these kind of like everybody says Beatles ask and whatever, but that was like kind of the, it was baked into the band from the beginning. So like, Mm -hmm. I do kind of see Colin, what you're saying about how like the, the pop sensibility wasn't like an attempt to sell out or whatever. It was just like, you know, natural because he was obsessed with John Lennon. Yeah. I wonder if, like the poppy aspects of the earlier stuff like Bleach, or even if you go back before Bleach, songs like um, Opinions, you know, mm-hmm. it's like you could, the recording of that is just him and an acoustic guitar. Yeah, it was like a radio session. Yeah, but I could take that and turn it into a pop song, no problem. You know, the melody, the chorus, everything is catchy as hell. Yeah. And that was always like the structure that he was coming from, mm-hmm. except for songs like Paper Cuts, where I wonder if that was him just trying to appeal to the scene that he was in. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, I want to be able to play at these venues and stuff. This is the type of music that they're playing. So I'll write a few of those. And then also these other songs. And they work. Should yeah. we listen to a little clip of Paper Cuts? Hell yeah. Yeah, Let's Cole and I it. both agree that this is our favorite Nirvana song. I'm I would say, it. without a doubt, this is the best Nirvana song. Yeah. I'm with it too. Just in, the, it in the past two days, like, listening to... <clears throat> Like everything they've put out, this one really stuck out. Yeah, I'm a sucker for the feedback, but I also like the story. You know, the, it's about like the sidekick of his dealer or something like that, who was living in an abusive home, and the parents would lock him in the his room and just like feed him under the table and shit. Uh, I, don't know, I really like this song, and I think he says "masturbate" in it. I'm, cool. pretty, I'm pretty sure that was when I learned what the word masturbate means. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it also Nirvana. says Nirvana in it. Oh, right. Yeah. And it's where they got the name Nirvana from. Oh, yeah. yeah. Wasn't there a group from like the 60s or 70s from yeah. England called Nirvana? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a really funny letter that he wrote to, I want to say Sub Pop, uh, where he's like, yeah, there's a, a another Nirvana from the 60s, but they totally suck. So whatever. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> they stole the logo too, I think. Really? At some point. Yeah. What were the other candidates for names? Fecal matter, um, pen cap chew. I want to say Ed Ted Fred. Yeah, Ed Ted Fred. And um, oh, Skid Row, which wasn't Skid yeah. Row already, a but he didn't know that. He didn't know that. Yeah. Nirvana was definitely the best choice of those. <laughs> yeah, but I like that. Like those other options for names that they actually entertained reveals how like fucked up they were. Well, pen, yeah. Ch- yeah. pen cap chew became a song. Yeah, title. That was a song. A good one, too. Yeah, That's just straight up, like, middle school core sounding. Well, like, the interesting thing about Kurt Cobain is that he is this kind of permanent teenager. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like it's revealed the most in him talking about his literary influences. You know, it's like the same couple books he talks about all the time, and it's like kind of this like adolescent. What was he into? He's in like you know Burroughs. He oh, was yeah. into um, Bukowski, like every fucking mm-hmm. like you know adolescent boy, and he talked in like a ton of interviews about that book, Perfume. Oh, um, yeah. I didn't realize that that's what Scentless Apprentice was about. Yeah, Scentless Apprentice just tells the story of that book, but it's obviously like a book he read, and it's like, you know, being 16, you read Catcher in the Rye, mm-hmm. and then people are like, what books do you like? You're like, you know, Catcher in the Rye and shit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Great Gatsby. So, like, he was this kind of permanent teenager, which, like, was to his benefit in some ways in terms of being the voice of Generation X, but also plainly to his detriment. Yeah, and... Arguably the detriment of Generation X. Mm-hmm. If like the voice of your generation is a child at heart, like what does that say about you? <laughs> um, All right, let's listen to Pink. Uh, yeah, to, let's uh, actually paper listen cuts. to the song because I can't remember how it goes. song I heard then I would have been a, a fan for sure it's interesting how like certain bands um, are very consistent in their sound so if you hear one song you kind of understand what they're going to sound like but Nirvana depending like on your entry point mm-hmm. you'd have a really different experience about how like stoked or angry you were you yeah. Know? yeah there's some people that have only listened to Unplugged and that's their idea of Nirvana really yeah well and smells like Teen Spirit I guess. sure yeah yeah was How it do you, you ben, who said that Unplugged is the best record? I said that. Best is a... And then I shamed you. Sorry. <laughs> well... I mean, it is great. Best 
is I think I just mean like the most palatable. Right. But how do you guys feel about that? Um, the unplugged. I think there's something really cool about taking like kind of you know it became like Kurt Swan song. Yeah. You know, um, and taking that like huge platform and that and that huge thing and making it so special, but also really paying respect to like the kind of like DIY roots. You know, they did like like two um um Me Puppets. That band you like, yeah, Me Puppets covers. They had and, the Me Puppets on. Yeah, yeah. They, one of the dudes was 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 playing guitar and and like, you know, David Bowie and the the Lead Belly song, like you doing those kind of something like that and playing a bunch of kind of out there covers, I think is really cool. And a lot of non-singles. Mhm. I thought that was cool. I, when I first got that record, I was on a, a road trip to Cooperstown with my father to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I got the CD on the trip and just didn't talk to him the whole trip. I just had my headphones on the whole time. And I regret it a lot. <clears throat> but I think it's because of how intimate it was. And, like, you know, this is before I had the internet. And so my ability to, like, find out who these people really were, you know, when you're a kid, you're just imagining the band in your head. And Unplugged gave you such a bigger insight into like who they were as people and stuff like Dave Grohl in between every song being like wait which song is next and then they just start playing without telling him mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah because like, before that I know for me growing up with Nevermind is the first one the only thing I had to know like who this band was was um the liner notes mm-hmm. you know and there's this kind of like obscured version of the lyrics with, like a line from each song and then there are these photos where Kurt's like flicking off the camera and I was like okay that's the angry guy like I remember when I was a kid listening to um lounge act and Mm -hmm. there's like the verse where he sings it straight and the verse where he screams it yeah I was like oh the first verse is this like nice looking guy (laughs) and then there's the mean guy yeah and like that's you know that this guy flicking off the camera that's the mean guy yeah that's pretty cool um we should go back to paper cuts Mm -hmm. because I think it uh, up until this point on the podcast, we've done like a bit of like a history lesson, um, and we didn't want to explicitly do it this time because most people just know about Nirvana. But I do think, uh, just to like continue the idea of like ent- different entry points in the band, maybe for people who haven't listened to um, Bleach and don't know about the Melvins, for example, maybe it'd be worth like talking about like the heavier influences on mm-hmm. the band and how they sounded around Bleach. Yeah, from uh, the notebooks or whatever, the journals, he makes like a list of like my favorite records or something. And I, you can just <laughs> Sound like- Sound just like him. <laughs> hey guys, it's me, Kurt Cobain. <laughs> um, that's actually how Dylan Carson sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's like my, one of my favorite parts about hearing Dylan in interviews or like actually meeting him is just like, yeah. oh, this guy is- actually the opposite of what I mm-hmm. all the mythology I'd build up in my head but those a lot of those records are like punk and hardcore records and like pretty like wild shit too like MDC and like I can't remember a lot of them but uh, well like Void is a big one which is just like in a really my friend Matt texted me the, the just like link to the Void record Time 
was like, this is like bizarre music, mm-hmm. like extremely, extremely weird and raw. Um, and fear. Yeah, fear he was into. That music is disturbed as well. Yeah. <laughs> Some dark shit. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of his favorite records were sort of this like proto alternative pop stuff like the Pixies or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Vaseline's is a huge one. Yeah, he covered Vaseline. Vaseline songs forever, named his daughter after Molly's Francis lips. from... Yeah, covered Molly's Lips, yeah. covered um, um, another one. I can't remember which one. Turnaround? Turnaround. Um, but it, what else was happening in Seattle, like, you know, 1990 or whatever? Well, that was... Vaseline's are from Scotland. Well, no, I mean, like, talking about, I don't know where Melvins are from either, but talking about, like, heavier music that's not the pop side, but, like, the more weird shit. Well, like, I feel like the the roots of what became grunge is, like, this, like, early Seattle-Tacoma scene with, like, the Sonics. Um, and then, like, later on, the Wipers oh, were, yeah. like, a huge influence on Nirvana. Mm-hmm. They covered um, two Wiper songs, Return right? Return of the Rat. Return of the Rat and D7. Yeah. D7's such a Yeah, D7's in my top three, I think. Yeah. Um, Even though it's a cover. Return of the Rat. But there was also, and I don't know if we want to start talking about that yet, but um, there's the Riot Girl scene. Yeah. Yeah, like L7 was a big one. L7, Brownmobile, Bikini Kill. And I think like, like... And Breeders. Readers. Kurt Cobain and the and the band were like heavily influenced by like heavy music like the Melvins and everything, but also like equally influenced by like him moving to Olympia at this like really formative time mm-hmm. at like being like um a kid of like divorced parents and like not having any friends and like hating the world and then moving to Olympia and like dating Toby Lane Toby Vale. Beki- or Toby Vale. Um, from Bikini Kill and like befriending Kathleen Hanna and like finding people that he actually got along with. And like they were all making like feminist, like mm-hmm. much, much different sounding music. And I feel like that's like, that's a reference point that a lot of people like miss out on when they think of Nirvana. Yeah, I guess people who don't know what Riot Girl is, it was a scene of bands um, made up of women speaking about feminism, violence against women. Um, you know, there's a there's like a riot girl manifesto that talks about creating non hierarchical non hierarchical ways of being, and so then I think it did influence grunge's or at least Nirvana's message of of gender equality um, and like fighting against sexism and homophobia. Yeah, totally. And and he was also like good friends with Calvin Johnson, who started K Records mm-hmm. and would like love beat happening, which is just like couldn't be more opposite from what Nirvana sounds like. And he has a K Records tattoo. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, I think like I think he ended up I mean, we can talk about like like how he got disillusioned by not only fame, but also like the people that ended up becoming his like diehard fans. How old was he when he moved to Olympia? Like 19 20. or something? Yeah, like early, yeah. Like that. if you think of our lives at that time, that's like such a foundational moment. And like you're befriending these feminists and like um, getting like exposed to like feminist and queer theory and stuff. And then you make this music that is like really explicitly anti-male and anti-patriarchy. 
and then your band becomes the biggest band in the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you have all these like like bro assholes coming to your shows and like I can't even imagine the like the terrible feeling that that would yeah bring or out like in you. the feeling you had when you found out that somebody had raped some a woman while singing the lyrics to Polly yeah which it's just like such a fundamental mis I've misunderstanding of the the purpose of the song right. like mm-hmm. there's a quote from him where he's talking about um like groups that deal with rape talk about rape it's like they're he said they're trying to educate women about how to defend themselves but what really needs to be done is teaching men not to rape mm-hmm. start at the source and go there and that that is like kind of what the band was doing yeah you know totally. and so like him having those kind of fans that are everything that he hated in in people you know he's like hated jo- the jocks and and whatever mm-hmm. that that was like the who he was like directly targeting right yeah and like very antagonistic Holly. you know like mr mustache right. and stuff like that um which is a song about just like a sexist stereotypical american like drinking beer watching football it was actually from a comic strip started that, that comic in yeah. the journals or <laughs> yeah the comic is like a, a father like holding a beer and he's like got his ear up to his pregnant wife's belly and he's like oh it sounds like an all-american beef eating football player and then the baby kicks through the womb and like kills the father um <laughs> which like gives you the idea of like his sort of adolescent perspective but that was when he was younger yeah um but yeah, it was very antagonistic in a way that m- might not have been productive in that, um, you know, he literally says in the liner notes of incesticide, like, if you are homophobic or sexist, get the fuck away from us. You know, yeah. not like, hey, maybe think about your opinions. And like, it was more just like, nope, you're a waste of life. He literally says that, like, you're a waste of sperm and eggs. You're plankton. Get the fuck yeah, out of Yeah, yeah, plankton is the word. Yeah. He's, um, and that was the root of their like antagonistic relationship with um, Guns N' Roses, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's the famous video of them at the like MTV music awards where they like, you know, Chris throws the bass up in the air and like knocks himself (laughs) out the bass. And and then Dave Grohls gets on the mic and is like, hi Axel, hi Axel, hi Axel. Um, And the root of it was, was his like deep problem with the sexism and homophobia Mm -hmm. and, and racism and racism in, in um, Guns N' Roses lyrics. And, um, you know, Axl Rose as a person. It's kind of like, um, it's a common theme almost in like, especially heavy music, like Judas Priest or like Queen. It's like, they have all these like meathead fans and it's like, and many homophobes too, I'm sure. But, you know, it's like, did you not notice like all the leather and like, yeah. Or like totally. that video of the the pro Trump fools dancing to uh, Rage Against the Machine, killing in the name, wearing the thin blue line American flag, yeah, singing all it's the like words. It's literally what the lyrics yeah. are about. <clears throat> but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong though. Maybe by alienating a group of people who like otherwise were like, oh, I, I love this music, and then they read the liner notes and they're like, oh, I'm not allowed to listen to it. Huh? Maybe I should question my opinion. Yeah, but do people think of themselves as like sexist or homophobic? Right. Because like in Bloom, I hadn't realized how directly confrontational that song yeah. is to like mm-hmm. a specific type of fan of theirs. Yeah, that's what that song is about. And that you know that those those dudes were in the audience singing along, not mm-hmm. even thinking about the lyrics, even though they're like singing a song that's about themselves being an asshole. I mean, it's like Born in the USA playing at Trump rallies. Right. You know, <laughs> totally. they pick one. 
one line. He said USA. Yeah. Or was it Fortunate Son? Fortunate oh, Son yeah, is that, another one, too. A recent one, yeah. It's yeah. like, how dumb are you? <laughs> Pretty dumb. Pretty dumb. <laughs> I wonder how much of… I, I just think it was like… I'm, I guess it was like post, never mind. But it's just interesting that like… They made this like really explicitly political and like at times feminist music. But it just like either was like too mainstream to be like uh, comprehended in like a rational way in a calm manner. Or it just like doesn't matter. Like when music gets to be that popular. I remember being in the car when I was younger um, and my friend Pat, who I mentioned earlier on the pod, like said, or he put on In Utero and Rape Me came on. And my mom was like, what is he saying? Yeah. And we were like, Rape Me. And she was like, I don't like this song. And yeah. there's like that YouTube video on the college campus. She's like, they go up to this girl the day after they give her the album. She's like, I listened to the the album i like some of the songs but that song rape me i don't like that song very much yeah. you know but then and the next woman that they asked is like i really like that song rape me yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> but it's just like you know if you it's funny how the genesis of nirvana has like so much more to do with like underground bands and you see it so clearly in that like a band like bikini kill could make a song uh, like rape me or Polly or something. And since they're smaller and they have a, like a more patient fan base, that song would potentially be like lauded as like very like intellectual and like, and like embraced for its like intended statement. But then Nirvana makes the same song. And because it like breaks into the mainstream, all of a sudden like that, that like insight or like the thought behind the song is like irrelevant because people just don't have the time well, to. I think rape me specifically wasn't very well thought out. Yeah, it's extremely inflammatory. Yeah, I, I mean, I get the point, but I yeah, the, they dropped the ball there. And like, I mean, I'm not saying this is a as like a statement. I'm saying this is a question. But you know, there there was this kind of like in your face. Um, it seems like there's this kind of like internalized homophobia in, you know, similar to like when you know, like a bunch of libs turned, you know, made like Proud Boys stickers that are these like, you know, the 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 rainbow flag. Yeah. And they're like, get it? Like, you're gay. It's yeah. like, okay, you know, is that like, so you're, what you're saying is that is the a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? And like kind of some of the gestures, like, you know, a- appropriating queer culture in terms of like their performances in drag or the kind of more like, in your face moments of like Kurt and Chris kissing each other on SNL, Mm -hmm. which is like a massive platform. Like what is it like, and the quote of like, I'm not gay, but I, if, but I wish I was to piss off homophobes. Like, it seems like there's this kind of internalized homophobia and like latent in the, in the thing. And like, it seems like it could be just an appropriation of queer culture in order to piss off people like using this this like um like the underlying s- statement seems to be like this is something bad so if we put it in your face then you'll react to it right or is that am i off base well, there's 
something like with the, the this whole like past few minutes conversation, like there's this uh, verse in the Bhagavad Gita where it says, um, you have a right to your action, but not to the fruits of your action. And so it's like, you can do whatever you want, but how it's interpreted doesn't have anything to do with you. Mm. And so, you know, or like what's the the cliche, like the road to hell is paved in good intentions or whatever. It's like their hearts were probably in the right place, but how it was interpreted or how we're interpreting it now, we don't really know where their heads were at but at like that time. But like part of it was to and to trigger a response, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but was- I think that's more born out of uh, the fact that they – he was trying to express that in his lyricism and like it was falling on deaf ears. And so like rate me, for example, being really inflammatory. I think he probably wrote that cause he was like, these fucking people won't listen to what I'm saying. And I have to find a way to like make them listen. It was actually to the opposite. Or rather people were looking too much into his lyrics and, you know, coming up with all these weird interpretations that were just completely inaccurate. And he was like, fine, if you're just going to make up, my thoughts. Oh, I'll you know, just make it then, explicit. Then, yeah, exactly. I'll make it explicit. You are raping me. You know, that's what it was about. But it was also... But it doubled. That's not only what it was about. Yeah, exactly. Well, he says after the fact, he's like, it's very much an anti-rape song. Um, I, I wrote a report on it in seventh grade English class, Mr. Bison. <laughs> uh, and, shout uh, out, Mr. Bison. Yeah, shout out. Mad dog. What was the name? Mad dog. You did a report on that song. I did a report on that song. Yeah, it was. We were doing like a public speaking, practicing or whatever. So we just had to like get up and say basically what we just pick a topic and read a page on it. And I was really good at it. Like I would always get people laughing and shit. So I loved it. And then I did that one, and I got a detention for it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not allowed to do that. Mister Bisson set me straight and basically said what I was too young to understand that it was <clears throat> ignorant and. Uh, yeah, your heart's in the right place, but it's just very poorly executed. And I think that with more with like the the antagonizing homophobes and stuff, you know, that uh, might have, you know, what we were talking about before, like, it, did it produce the results that he intended? Like, he's not changing any of those people's minds, is he? Or is he just saying, like, you're dumb and I don't want to deal with you. Get out of here. Um, because, you know, like, for example, the the kiss at the MTV thing where he kissed Dave and Chris, and that was in the liner notes of Incesticide too, I think, where he he lists that as one of his most memorable, important moments of his life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, his intentions are good, but he also says just to piss off homophobes, and <clears throat> that doesn't do anything except reinforce to homophobes what they already believe, especially know? if you know. I mean, to to use the like Proud Boys sticker as an example again, like. Pissing off homophobes by saying you're gay, right? And like the the like understanding that they're both pushing is like this is something wrong, right? But then so, and I I definitely want to hear more from um, y'all about it. But it like it does. There was this thing in um, Oregon in the '90s called. Um, uh, Measure 9 in 1992 that was this bill that said school schools shall assist in setting a standard for Oregon's youth that recognizes homosexuality, pedophilia, sadism, and masochism as abnormal, wrong, unnatural, and perverse, and that those behaviors are to be ex- discouraged and, av- and avoided. 
and you know they were outspoken um, against um, against Measure Nine, it, which right? they did a benefit show for it. I think it's like a lot of it for me in trying to like decide or determine whether or not their intentions were good has a lot to do with like whether or not we really understand like how like Kurt Cobain like identified then. Cause I know in his journals, he talked about identifying more as like a female. He also like mentioned bisexuality. And I think now I'm pretty certain that given the shift culturally and this like expansion of like mainstream vocabulary, when it comes to like queer identity and everything, I really think that he would identify as queer and like, Maybe that's like a, that's a, um, a leap or something. But because of that, I think, I don't know. I think the intentions were good, and and we have to remember that he was like a straight up like outcast punk, and so like these things like, he was just like lashing out. He was he was yeah. doing what he was like, he was using the weapons at his disposal, so to speak. And I think it's okay because of that. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if like the fingernails and the. Uh, the eye makeup and stuff like that was in the same vein as trying to piss off homophobes or was it just him expressing how he feels well there had been like a long tradition of that that i think he was influenced by like going back to you know new york dolls and um bands that that were experimenting with like non-binary like uh gender fluidity and like and and like um androgyny Mm -hmm. you know i i think that i'm you know he was influenced by by that, but um, that's it. Yeah, I remember thinking of that a lot when we wore dresses at a dive show very early on. This has been, what, 2012? Maybe? Yeah, we've done that a few times, though. Really? Yeah. Or for Halloween. Yeah. We only did it once when it wasn't Halloween because we were doing some corporate, I forget, it was like yeah, it was Fader. Like the Fader or something. Like on top of a fancy mm-hmm. hotel or something. I had really bad alcohol poisoning that day and I like could barely play the guitar. Anyways, and I I remember afterwards being like, huh, I wonder if my trans friends are going to be offended by that. Or, you know, because we were just cross-dressing. To yeah, a bunch of straight guys. Yeah, exactly. And I, I do regret that in a way. But I also asked a lot of my trans friends or just anybody in, in the queer community, LGBT, and they're like, no, that's cool. Yeah, I think there's a there's an issue of like, um, like how like your per, your perspective informs the way that you judge a situation, mm-hmm. and that like, I know like because of his journals, and because of the way he did dress and challenge gender norms and everything, like he's still an enduring icon for like the trans community and queer community and mainstream community. Like he did so so much. Um, and I think it's like, there's like, so a lot of people have a tendency to get like upset for another group of people, whether or not that other group of people is upset about something. And I think like it all comes down and this is maybe, I mean, your, your reference to the, what's the ver the verse in the, you have a, a right to your action, but not the fruits of your action. Yeah. Like that's a whole, like, that's a whole discussion now. <laughs> about like um like your your actions versus your intentions and like being accountable for so- how someone like reacts to something that you do i feel like that's something like in identity politics that's being like fiercely debated right now the idea of like confronting like homophobia or whatever by dressing 
like very flamboyant is like, that's like a tradition of queer and gay culture. And like, depending on like your, depending on your position or your own identity, whether or not you participate in that is potentially questionable, but I still think like the overall result of like Kurt Cobain challenging homophobia and like masculinity and the patriarchy is a good yeah, thing. I was going to say that cause I, you know, I was coming of age, creating my own opinions around the time that I started listening to Nirvana and I, you know, in my group of friends who were all using the F word left and right, yeah, you know, everything. Well, that's gay. That's gay. And I was like, y'all, I'm, I'm not going to say that. You should stop saying that. And that was because of Nirvana. That, yeah, totally. And you know, in 1996, for an 11 year old to say, I'm not going to say the word gay, like that was a big deal. And I got that from Nirvana. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think it was effective, uh, at least to other straight white people like me. Also, the the reference we made to the SNL performance where Chris and Kurt uh, make out on stage, I think that was, I think they probably did that intentionally because of. Bowie doing that with um what's hmm. the guitarist's name who did all the arrangements he did the arrangements on uh that Lou Reed record too Transformer it's Joe Satriani Mick Ronson Ronson Mick Ronson okay so I think Chris and Kurt making out on SNL was kind of like a continuation of the lineage of being like like expressing your like non-traditional masculinity or like queerdom or whatever that's in keeping with this performance that Bowie did of I think five years or something or no uh Starman where like at one point he's singing and Mick Ronson his guitarist and backup vocalist is like singing backing vocals and Bowie goes over to him and like puts his arm around him and they're dressed like very glam and they're like leaning together. And it was like this shockwave that like rippled out. And it was mm. like that hadn't really been seen on like major television. Mm. And I think that like they were probably doing it for that reason to like continue a, continue this like this tradition of like like pushing the non-norm to the mainstream when you have the opportunity. Was that before the uh, Mick Jagger video with Bowie? What's Dancing that in the video? streets. Dancing Holy in the street. shit, that video is insane. Yeah. It's but insane. wasn't Bowie openly bi? Bowie was openly bi. Yeah. Which, I don't know. Because I, I agree that if the the language that we have now was there in the 80s and 90s, that Kurt might have identified as anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but bi did... You know, and he says, like, yeah, I, I never experimented. Like, he was afraid to admit because he didn't, you know, one of his best or his first male friend was gay. Yeah. And his mother said, you're not allowed to hang out with him. And he was like, it sucked because that was the first male that I could hug and yeah. be affectionate with. And I don't know. It, wouldn't he have just said, hey, I'm bi? No, because, like, everyone arrives at that at a different time. And I don't think just because, like, if later on in life, Kurt Cobain admitted that he was probably bi. I don't think we should like punish him for in the moment of being like, you know, mic up to his face for like enemy or something, not saying like, yeah, I'm bi. Because coming out is a like extremely complicated process and everyone does it in their own time. Yeah. So I think like, that's why I'm allowing for, I think, I think it's okay to allow for like a revised history of their actions because I think it's like, 
I think they were legitimate because of that. Whereas, like, if, you know, if, if Kirk Cobain was still around and, like, he ended up going down the Adam Carolla path or whatever, or <laughs> even the fucking Chris Novoselic path, like, right. he's a bit sketchy. Like, yeah. like, I wouldn't be so, like, lenient and, like, uh, you know, judging the way they acted at that time. I would be, like, I would probably say, like, oh, they were being, like, asshole kids. I mean, like, mm-hmm. the the crazy thing about the Chris political path was, like, even after Nirvana, he was playing, you know, he played in this, like, played at the, um, at a protest for the NWO with Jello Biafra and, like, these kind of, like, leftist causes. And, like, you know, now has, like, that he's rich, has, like, embraced this, like, weird bullshit, like, libertarian yeah. ideology. I mean, he was a politician in the 90s. Yeah. Or he, like, ran for... Um, early like late nineties, early two thousands. But it wasn't on a right wing ticket at all. No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was a switch somewhere along the way. I didn't know. Did he get more money like after two thousand or something? I don't know. Probably. I mean, it's like a it's a very common story where you get older and at a certain point, like people just become. I don't think it's older. I think it's like richer, it's older, and richer, richer, and yeah, both. Because as I get older, I feel like I get, I move further and further to the left. Yeah. Because, like, you know... I guess by saying it's a common story, I don't think that it's, like, the norm. No, but it's, it's something that I hear hap- happens. When you, you know? get super rich, you become more insulated. Right. And I think when you don't have as many mm, diverse opinions around you, you just, like, end up in this weird, like, well, I need to make sure that I'm providing for my family and keeping everything that I've earned, you know? Yeah. And you get really rich, and then all like you start hanging out with rich people, right? And then all of a sudden, all the social events you go to. But people, it's also how like they've proven that the region of your brain responsible for empathy is diminished the more power and money you acquire, mm-hmm. and so it's like literally they're less capable of right. giving a shit about people other than themselves. Totally, which makes it so much more admirable for the people who don't do that. The Dive Podcast. The ultimate thing that goes along perfectly with what we're talking about is like, you know, having your messages misunderstood by such a great number of people. And then he fucking committed suicide at the end of it, you know? Yeah, right. Like it was probably so, I mean, obviously he was uh, addicted to drugs in a real bad way. And like there were probably many other uh, things leading up to that moment. But like ultimately I would imagine being so famous and so misunderstood probably leads to a place of hopelessness. Yeah. I mean, I think I like, it's hard to, it's hard to decide whether or not that's what led to it for him because he was like suicidal early in his life too. Mm -hmm. And he talks about that openly. And so like, maybe that was like, it, it led to a breaking point. But I wonder what else, like... I mean, you can't say, like, that was the reason. Yeah, But it probably sure. contributed to no, his like, state. there is no, you know, one reason ever. But, you know, like like I said earlier in the pod about that being, like, the kind of end point of capitalism for artists is, like, you know, you either... Um, I can't remember what I said. But, like, one of them is that you wind up dead. And, like, same thing, like, in the recovery community... Uh, uh, um, talking about addiction, it's like there's there's three roads, you know. 
jails, institutions, death. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, I, you know, I listened to a lot of Nirvana's music when I was in rehab, and he, like, he killed himself coming out of rehab in the same fucking place I was in rehab. You know, not the same building, but in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, and, like, the desperation that you find yourself in, in, in a situation like that, and feeling, you know, he just, like, he had so much shame about his addiction that, you know, he was in a voluntary facility where you can just fucking leave whenever you want, you know? And he jumped the fence and like ran away. Cause that's like, too, right? it was like a 10 foot. Yeah. And that's like, that's, that's shame, mm-hmm. you know? And then went went back to, to Seattle and Courtney Love is gone. She's on tour with Smashing Pumpkins with Billy Corgan. And mm-hmm. so he like, you know, can't reach her on the phone, like has, you know, his community is so small because of like what Ben talked about when like you get rich, your community gets smaller and smaller and smaller and didn't really have anybody, you know? And so it, it seems like a, a thing, especially having already survived one overdose, you know, it, it like when people, it just like upsets me when I look at, you know, before the podcast, I was like, I wonder if there's any other podcasts about Kurt Cobain. And there are all these fucking like murder conspiracy, like true crime yeah. um, things about like who killed Kurt Cobain. It's like, yo, do you have no empathy? Like look at his fucking life. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's all the writing is on the wall. It's like it's there. So like just take it for what it is. It's fucking horrific to like try to like turn it into this whole thing. You know, like uh, Kurt and Courtney, which is like kind of the original – movie that talked about that like for me all i got from it was like okay they're surrounded by grifters Mm -hmm. and everybody just is like oh yeah i used to get high with Corden, courtney Curtin, Curtin, (laughs) kurt cobain and courtney love (laughs) and like you know they're all fucking just lying everybody just wants like a piece you know there's and like and then the soaked and bleach documentary on netflix like that fool is a grifter yeah he made a whole career off of like saying that like like there's no way he killed himself like this like it was the woman yeah, he's been at yeah. it for what 30 years almost and he starts with that conclusion it's not like right. let's let's look at all the evidence it's like okay here's why i know the conclusion i think it's important to what cole touched on about the fact that he had just gotten out of rehab and getting out of rehab and then picking up right away must be the most hopeless you can possibly mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. Of just like I just have zero. I cannot control. stop. Yeah. yeah, it's just everything is out of my grasp right now, and and that's step one. You right. know, you're powerless. Yeah, exactly. That's the first thing you have to mm-hmm. acknowledge. And so if you're in that place, and you got a gun and grip of heroin, I don't know. And and like your wife isn't picking up the phone. Yeah, you know you don't have access to to your daughter. It's it's like it's bleak, man. And not just being ostracized because of becoming a rich person, but also becoming like one of the most famous people in the entire world, mm-hmm. you know, and like the the sense of like complete loneliness that he must have felt, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, it was one of the things Steve Albini said was that every single person surrounding the band were pieces of shit, right? Just leeching off of them, mm-hmm. and it was like the band themselves were great guys, but every single other person um, that he encountered associated with them, he was just like. 
get them out of here. And that's why they recorded in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, because mm-hmm. it was the only way you could keep those people away. Yeah. You know? Which makes sense. You know, you got a, a millionaire rock star, the, one of the most famous people in the world, who's also susceptible to being taken advantage of because he's yeah, a drug he's a addict. permanent teenager and a yeah. drug addict. Yeah. And there's a level of hopelessness that I think a lot of famous people get to that is like, okay, I achieved my childhood dream. I have money to buy anything I want, and I still don't feel good, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. like he sold the Lexus that he bought and re-bought the Volvo that he had sold. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, like the literal right. same car? Yeah, like he sold his Volvo, bought a Lexus, and then was like, oh, wait, fuck this. Sold yeah. the Lexus and got his Volvo back. <laughs> I think... His dream more, and the real sadness about him killing himself in in my eyes is that like his dream more was just like having a like traditional family, because he talks about that being like such a fundamental moment when his mm-hmm. parents got divorced, and then he was just like everything up until that point was like good, and then that happened and he felt like adrift and he was just constantly searching, and then he like had it, mm-hmm. you know, but, but like, like kind of didn't too, you know. That's like one of the most devastating parts of the montage of heck thing is like. How fucking out of control and like in his addiction he was yeah. when his when his kid is a baby and needs you and he's like nodding out with like her in his arms. It's it's sad, man. Yeah. That I mean the yeah, the, the tragedy of like finding what you want, but like the road that leads to finding it makes it impossible to actually like maintain it or have it in a meaningful sense. It's like hmm. extremely dark. Yeah, I can totally understand like the it like I makes me really fucking mad. And I hadn't really thought about it until now, which just like pisses me off so much. These people who rather than like confronting like the very human, like logical reasons for his death, just totally ignore it for just because they're looking for. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, just like milk the fucking milk everything. But like then to milk that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it yeah, it ties into, you know, milking it until the band and the music is nothing more than a t-shirt you know it's like mm-hmm. the dude is dead and you're still trying to milk this shit for pennies like speaking of which we milk should it? listen to milk it yes <laughs> favorite song on in utero oh my Dad. god yeah Please. Fuck it. Throw it in there. Uh, great song god I, I used to play in a jazz band in high school and the drummer was like a hip-hop drummer but also like really good at jazz drumming and shit like that and i just one day started playing milk it and he was like oh my god keep doing that and just had so much fun just like doing crazy ass fills of it uh-huh. I, I love that song um should we listen to it i would love to yeah, yeah.
so that was Milk It off In Utero, Nirvana's last record. Um, and it was produced by Steve Albini. Hell yeah. And who, I, I, I take it back, it's not my favorite song on the record. Francis Farmer, yes. Really? Yeah, Francis Farmer. I love the, the guitar parts. It's two guitars, but you can play it as one. But it sounds so much better as two guitars panned a little bit. I think um, to wrap up, I think maybe it'd be cool to just talk about the incesticide liner notes because a lot of people talk about the quote that you mentioned earlier, but there's also just like a, it's like written by Kurt. It's like three pages long and it's just like an incredibly like honest, like human depiction of himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about going to London, like at peak fame and like being kind of bashful little like bit of like imposter syndrome or just insecurity and like going to this record store trying to looking for a raincoats lp not finding it but then the person at the store saying like i'm friends with one of the people in that band a band that he really loved um she works at this antique shop and so he goes and talks to her and asks about this album she's like yeah i have a feeling around maybe i'll send it to you and he said he walked away feeling like kind of like embarrassed about asking and then he got they sent him like a signed copy and like handwritten notes and stuff. And then after that, he just lists all these like notable things that he had experienced from being in the band. And they're all just so like simple, just like gestures from musicians and bands that he loved and respected. And him just talking about how that always meant so much more than any of the fame and money. And like, I feel like it's just a nice sentiment or at least a nice thing to point to for the listeners after we had like kind of a heavy conversation about the end of his life because it's easy to think about him and get like really like legitimately depressed and bummed out. But then reading that, I was actually just like really stoked because he was such like a, he was such a fucking cool person, you know? He was a deep music fan and like just like, just a fan of like underground culture and everything. So it's worth, it's worth reading for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it's also, you know, as, like, musicians, really relatable, too, because it is, like, I mean, not that, because he says, like, yeah, I made a million dollars, and that's cool, and, like, we did not make a million dollars, but I totally identify with the part that's, like, the coolest part of this journey is, like, being a music fan and then having, getting to meet those people and getting respect from those people and finding out that they are just people and that we're all kind of like experiencing a similar life and that we're all like fans of the same mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, it seems like it's becoming kind of a theme on on this podcast because it, it reminds me of the story that you told last episode about um, sharing a van in a stage with Slow Dive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it is these small things and like, yeah, they're just people, but like they're filled with so much importance to us as fans. And, you know, I think we also talked about how, you know, so many bands start as really deep music fans and it's really refreshing, um, you know, as a big music fan to like, remember that that's kind of why we're all doing this, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And like the, the motivations and like, you know, capitalism and all this stuff like pushes you away from that. And like dilutes it, but like the truth is that that's that's why we are taking this path is because we love music, and you know I I I think you'd have a hard time finding somebody who makes music that didn't start 
at least start with that Mm -hmm. in their mind. So it's really refreshing to see somebody with like such a massive amount of fame and success to just be like, yeah, this is, you know, I really like this Raincoats record and here's the story of me getting it. Yeah. And the bands that he lists are super cool. He's like, I mean, I've gotten to play with like the Jesus Lizard and Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. Shonen Knife. Shonen Knife, Yeah. yeah. Mud Honey, like. Also talking about being able to like demand that uh what's that one band? The one they played Redding. Bjorn again. Oh right. Who I've but yeah, it's to. just it was it was refreshing for me to read that and just like made me smile because he even in, in the liner notes refers to himself as the untouchable boy genius in quotes. And just oh, yeah. like it it must have been like it must have been like acutely lonely for him to feel as though he was being put on like some sort of pedestal when really he just wanted to be a part of a community of mm-hmm. bands. Yeah. And he calls himself out for other things in the liner notes too, for for the same purpose, I think. Right. Um, like uh, how like everybody's making this big deal out of a divorce. It was just a divorce. I'm fine. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> dive podcast well i think it's a good good spot to end it oh and we're gonna do a nirvana jam oh yeah holy shit (laughs) yeah that's gonna be a weird one this is really funny to me i was thinking about it the other day just because like it's just their music is so specific and it's actually they're a big influence on us but we don't actually like really specifically sound like nirvana there's just certain things but like the overt influences are much more in line with like the Cure, Noi, Slow Dive, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It's MBV. pretty... It's funny how, like, I think when you're a new band, you can kind of, like, make up your own story, you know? And I think we just started saying yeah. that Nirvana was an influence because it was, but the influence came from reading his journals and being like, oh, okay, this is how you write lyrics. Yeah, it was almost you know, more This is how too. you start a band. Yeah. You know, writing letters to his bandmates being like, we have to practice this many times. We have to do this. Here, I'm starting the band name. Now mm-hmm. what? Now what? And and like having, for me, having watched my friends do it, you know, I was like, okay, well, that's that's one way. And then reading the journals, I was like, oh, you know, that was like kind of the thing that made me want to start a band in the first place mm-hmm. was just like, okay, like it's possible. You know, it just starts with like getting your friends together and practicing. Um, so that was like the main influence, but then Mm -hmm. it just kind of like carried over and then like kind of spiraled out of control in terms of being cited as a reference. But yeah, I think musically it's like a, like extremely small. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Even when we covered Nirvana for, it was a B-side, right? What? Oh, we covered Baby Slaughter. Slaughter, Yeah. Even that didn't sound like Nirvana. No. And like that. To be fair, the original doesn't sound like Nirvana either. Oh, it's yeah, just like right. a single bass. Yeah, it's bass and playing drums on the suitcase. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do, I do think there's certain. I know that the, I do think about the bass lines in Nirvana, but I also think about like it's more of like an approach to bass playing that that they stole from the Pixies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Of just like really simple. And then, like, I'm sure you had a similar influence. But we did, like, we referenced, like, Dave Grohl's drumming when we made Deceiver. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that we can pull, but this will be this will Yeah, be like playing the fourth of the scale instead of the root or the fifth of the mm-hmm. scale instead of a root is, like, a classic Nirvana trick. Like, the, you know, the bass line of Lithium, it starts on, you know, yeah. it's all fourths. Or just how they, you know, he would write 
on the guitar, it would just be power chords, mm -hmm. which aren't major or minor. They're mm -hmm. just, you know, fifth chords or whatever, five chords. But then the vocal melody is what defines these chords as major or minor hmm. and allowed him to branch out from just like, all right, if you're playing in C, then these are the notes you're allowed to play. Mm -hmm. He would just sing a vocal melody over these chords. And whether or not he, I, I don't think he had too much music theory knowledge going on, but he was doing like advanced modal shit. Oh, I, I want to talk for one second about the lyrics because I think for the jam, it's going to be extremely hard because Nirvana is such a vocal forward band mm. and you know all like every cover of Nirvana it's really difficult all the tribute things are really difficult to listen to because it's just like the the person is missing you yeah, know the totally. like thing that Nirvana is isn't there so you know then for us it's like what what do you what do you do um but one thing that I'll say lyrically that I learned a lot from was um What's the song that like it was like a super old demo? Um, all the flowers sing in D minor, dun, dun, naturally. Oh, Be together with you, my okay. Um, so like listening between the two, the like fecal matter demo of Spank Through, and then the like the, you know like final like the faster studio mm -hmm. version. There's these like little small differences. You know, there's like a line from the original one that's the flowers sing in D minor. And then in the final one, it's the flowers have gingivitis. Mm -hmm. It's the same like syllables and like, um, what's it called? Like like vowel sounds or whatever, yeah. but it's different words with different meanings. And that was, I think, kind of important for the way that we wrote lyrics in the beginning, which was just to like figure out which vowel sounds sound good in certain parts and then kind of like make words from there. Yeah. And then I think we kind of threw that out a little bit on the last record, which became more like you know, the lyrics just kind of like were put into the songs. Yeah. But there was some of that. Yeah, for sure. But in the yeah. beginning, it was like that. I learned from him, like, oh, that's how you write lyrics. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how we'll do that in the jam. Maybe we'll just do a Nirvana instrumental. Or yeah. or like Endless Nameless, you know? Ooh, that's a good <laughs> idea. Which is them jamming. Yeah. You know, so that would make sense to... Yeah, exactly. Like that and... Uh, gallons of alcohol or rubbing alcohol flow through the strip that the worst song of all time yeah because they were saying like we were just fucking around like yeah. they, we didn't think anybody would actually hear this like we were just fucking around and Endless Namus was the same thing but it's more of a song and it, it rocks like it's, mm -hmm. it's out there and they're destroying their guitars halfway through it but mm -hmm. um, I used to listen to that all the time so yeah I'd love to do a jam like that alright alright well one. let's do it thank you for listening we will be back next week <laughs>